0: It's great to see you all. As Sarah has already mentioned, we're going to be continuing our series on the the first part of Luke's gospel. And if you have been reading along and following the reading guides that we produced, you will have read um, these verses, um, Luke chapter 3 verse 21 through to chapter 4 verse 13. And this really is the a little bit of a transition unit that Luke puts into his gospel. He's got to the end of introducing Jesus, setting him up for his public ministry, telling the story of what happened in these little families that give birth to the Messiah. And in this section, we read about a number of things. We have a brief description of Jesus' baptism. And of course, we read there that the divine voice confirms Jesus' status the first thing that happens. Afterwards, we get a a list of names, a, a genealogy of Jesus that Luke provides. And of course, when we look at this particular genealogy, different than the other ones in the Gospels, Luke traces Jesus' ancestry right back to the starting point, right back to Adam's creation by God and their significance in That particular effect. Finally, we read of Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness, where Jesus proves his faithfulness and shows he is ready now to assume the task given him. He has proven faithful in the wilderness. 40 days and nights fasting. At his weakest moment, he overcomes and he proves his faithfulness. That's how those three little things hang. Together and as we read on, we're we're going to read a little bit more and find out a little bit more about Jesus' public ministry. But today, I want to focus on the genealogy that Luke presents for us, and I want to ask a question: What purpose do they serve? What purpose do genealogies in the Bible serve? When I first became a Christian, um, I decided to read the Bible through from cover to cover from start to finish. Has anybody else ever tried that? Yeah, it's hard going, isn't it? It's not necessarily the best way of reading the Bible, by the way, but it's not a bad thing to do, and it's quite often the way people get into the Bible for the first time. So off I set into the fascinating world of Scripture. Now, one of the things I discovered as I was reading through Genesis into Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and beyond was that periodically I would encounter long lists of people's names. Have you ever come across that in your own reading of Scripture? Such and such begat such and such, and this one begat that, and he begat that, and so on and so forth. I don't know about you, but I find these particular chapters really, really hard work. They're repetitive, they can be a little bit mind Numbing, and I have to be honest. When I started reading the scriptures, I adopted a pretty much pragmatic approach to these long lists of names. I would do one of two things: I would either either just skim read them, or I would just flick forward till they obviously stopped and pick up the story. Because in my mind, they were an interruption to the main narrative, to the to the action. I just wanted to get to the action. And I have to admit that it's only been recently that I have understood what their purpose and what their significance in Scripture is. In summary, we could say that the genealogies that we discover in the Bible, well, they serve a number of purposes, some a mixture of all of these, some just one or two of these things. But in summarizing, we could say this, the genealogies confirm ownership. So some of the genealogies that are listed in Scripture are essentially saying that this is a group of people, and they belong to God. It's almost a basis. God is laying claim on a community of of people, and for much of the Bible, the claim is laid upon the Hebrew people, the the Israelites. They are there because God is saying, those people belong to me, and that's the basis um, for the law that I'm giving them for the way they're meant to live. They're to live this way because they belong to me. That's one of the purposes that genealogies serve. They also affirm membership and equal participation in a community. So if you've read the book of Numbers, and there's a clue in the name of that book, Numbers, (laughs) there's a number of censuses taking place, and you will read lots and lots of names and lists of genealogies. Why does this appear? Well, in this particular book, what it's saying is that every tribe and every person of every tribe has a stake in the community. That's why their name appears. You are a full member of this community. You have a stake in this community, and your membership matters. But perhaps most intriguingly of all, genealogies sometimes serve the purpose of signaling a new beginning. Again, when you're reading through, sometimes it appears as if somebody has just taken a a long list of names, stuck them in the middle of a story, and it doesn't feel quite right. It feels like an interruption. But some of the genealogies that appear in the scripture do so at crucial moments in the story, often at catastrophic junctures when something has gone wrong. For example, in the book of Genesis, and you may have read through the book of Genesis, the listing of Jacob's 12 sons, or in the book of Numbers, a census itemizing the number of people in each of the 12 tribes comes after a serious offense has been committed something has gone wrong in the relationship either between one another or between the family and God. And the scripture uses a little narrative device that signals a complete breakdown in relationship. There is crisis, there is catastrophe, where it seems as if words can no longer be exchanged between two parties. It even hints that God himself has run out of words. <laughs> have you ever reached that moment in life? And I know some of you have, when words, they just fail you. There is a breakdown and you are unable to communicate. When we get into that position in relationship with one another, that's a dangerous thing. <laughs> when we get into that point in a relationship with God, or perhaps He runs out of words for us, that is a dangerous, dangerous time. And the interesting thing is in Scripture, we see a number of moments where the relationship between the covenant family and God seems to, it seems to, as if it's come to an end. There's no hope for a future. And then appears this long list of names. And what this signifies is a new beginning. God has absorbed the loss but determined to start all over again. And so he lays out a list of names that affirms his ownership of that collection of people. And he affirms their membership in his project. And in doing so, he's offering people a new beginning. I find this to be a source of really, really good news. Sometimes people look at the Old Testament and think God's just always angry. There's no grace there. It's a misreading of the text. Grace has been there from the very, very beginning. And so we come to this juncture in Luke's gospel. Jesus is about to go public. Of course, it stands to reason that a long list of people's names will appear. A new beginning is at hand. And this is what Luke is hinting at for you and I who are reading the gospel all these years later. We could say, in summary, Luke is telling us that in Jesus, all humans, all humans, everybody who has been born well, all humans have the chance of a new beginning that is not dependent on what has gone on before them. I think that that is a source of really, really good news. What is in our present and in our future does not have to be dependent on that which has gone before us. Now, where we come from is important. Of course, we know that. Family lines and genealogies were important to ancient people, not just the Hebrews, but we can see that it was really important to them, such as the prevalency of these genealogies and family trees in the scripture. But of course, they're really, really fascinating to us as modern people as well. Perhaps you have done a little bit of research into your family tree. Have any of you ever accessed some services like ancestry.com to have a little bit of a, a look into your past and where you have come from? They're absolutely fascinating. I had cause to look up my own family tree recently. A cousin of mine had done a little bit of research into the origins of own family and once you start delving into your past well I tell you what there's no such thing as a boring family tree for better or for worse the story of our lives human drama it's like no other (laughs) there's a, a program on on television on the BBC that's called who do you think you are has anybody watched Who Do You Think You Are on, on the BBC? Yeah, some, some of you have. And really what they do is they, they get a, a bunch of celebrities and they trace their family trees. And of course, they discover all sorts of surprises from their past. One that I can remember watching that made a little bit of an impact on me was one featuring the actress Patsy Kenza, and, and her story was really quite moving. Um, her late father, um, Jimmy, was a real, real villain and was deeply involved with the most notorious gangsters of the 1960s. He worked with the Crays. That's, a, that's a, a name that you've probably come across before, so much so that um, one of the Cray brothers was godfather to Patsy Kensit's brother, right? That's how close the, the families were. And in the episode, she's really, really apprehensive about looking into the background of her, her family. She, she's nervous about it. This is not something that she is particularly proud of. And she's able to unlock all the details of her father's murky past. She begins to understand the roots of his criminality and discover how far back the family trade goes. So it's not just her father who is a crook, it's also her grandfather as well. And I tell you, it's a little bit frightening. The amount of documentation people are able to access about people is frightening. I don't know what's on file on me. I shudder to think. And I'm wondering if if in the not-too-distant future somebody's going to be doing some background digging on me. God save me and them from, from doing that there. But... This is the thing. She began to trace her roots back even further, down through the, the generations. She discovered that she comes from a, a line of artisans who were really, really rich, fell into terrible poverty. And one of the moments that was really quite moving in the show was that she discovered that in her ancestry, she had a vicar who was really, really influential in, in London, uh, working and ministering amongst the poor. This man was a, was a saint, <laughs> And what I find interesting watching shows like that is the emotional connection that people in the present have with dead relatives. (laughs) There's a link there. It's not like just sitting in a history class and looking objectively into history. There is a connection between the living and the dead. (laughs) Where we come from is important. Our ancestors live on inside of us. Probably none more, more so than our parents. This quote from Oscar Wilde always makes me laugh. All women become like their mothers. That is their tragedy. I can hear my sister's voice in this here. No man does, and that is his. <laughs> but truly our ancestors, not just our parents, live on inside of us. The past is relived in the present, but here's the thing, it doesn't have to be. Luke is telling us in this genealogy that Jesus has come to give us a new beginning, and that with his help, we can change. We can change. We talk about this so much in scripture that the very fact of this being a possibility becomes, become, what's that expression when you become too familiar with something? Desensitized. It will work for this particular moment. We become desensitized to a truly revolutionary message. We can change. We have experienced Jesus' power to change us from crooks and villains into saints (laughs) who here has been turned from a a villain into a saint (laughs) who here has experienced jesus stepping into your life and changing it for the better (laughs) changing you for the better changing me for the better i have experienced that i'm really really thankful for it now luke in a sense is doing his own version of who do you think you are with jesus in the genealogy and i think that there's a person in jesus family line who perhaps most clearly demonstrates the potential of change his name is judah you may have come across judah before but we read the the list through now jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry i find this detail in luke really moving Jesus, just this young man, just this young man starting out, I find it really, really moving. He's just a young guy. Three years later, his life is going to be snuffed out. (laughs) I find it really, really moving. 30 years old. I could barely tie my shoelaces when I was 30. And this young man, Jesus, changes things for us. But we read through his list. (laughs) You could imagine Nicky Campbell talking with Jesus and saying, who do you think you are? And there appears the name Judah. Who is Judah? Well, if you have read the book of Genesis, you will have come across him in the final section in the book of Genesis. He is Jacob's fourth son, and he's perhaps a guy who lives in the shadow of a successful younger brother. Anybody lived in the shadow of a sibling? (laughs) Judah is one of these. He's the big brother to Joseph. Now, you may know the story of Joseph through things like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolour Dreamcoat. Anybody seen that musical before? I I signed up to be part of the choir when I was at school of a school production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolour Dreamcoat, and I was cruelly cut out of the drama. My voice wouldn't cut it. It still feels deeply painful all these years later. But you maybe know the story of Joseph, perhaps through Joseph and the king of dreams, or perhaps just from your reading of the Bible. But if you've read it, you'll come across Judah. And it is Judah, in his first recorded words in Scripture, who suggested selling his younger brother Joseph into slavery. So we read in Genesis 37 that Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not harm him with our own hands. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. This is a speech of like monstrous callousness. There's no mention of the evil of murder, merely a pragmatic calculation on Judah's behalf what will we gain by killing our brother he's trading in commodity can you imagine talking about your brother or sister in these terms this is utter callousness and at the very moment he lays claim to joseph he is our flesh and blood he's proposing to sell him as a slave Now, at this point, Judah is the last person from whom we could expect great things. The phrase, he'll never amount to much, could have been coined for Judah. However, Judah, perhaps more than any other person in Scripture, changes so you know the story that the brothers eventually end up in Egypt, driven there through famine. You know, you, you guys know the story of Joseph, don't you? He becomes the prime minister of Egypt, and the brothers eventually have to go back to Egypt, and there's a, like a, a brothers reunited scene, but it's not without a little bit of drama of its own. And essentially, there becomes a moment in the story where Benjamin... Joseph's younger brother well it looks like he's going to be brought into slavery as well and Judas speaks up and this is what he says now therefore please let your servant remain here as your lordship's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers for how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me no do not let me see the misery that shall come upon my father this is a changed man (laughs) This is not the same guy we read about 20-plus years later, plotting to sell his younger brother into slavery. There is a reversal. Concern instead of callousness. Indifference, well, it's replaced by a passion for the betterment of, of someone else. Courage instead of cowardness. Judah is willing to suffer what he once inflicted on Joseph so that the same fate would not befall Benjamin. <laughs> there's a change here. Can, can you see that there's a change affected in this man? This is a highly significant moment because scripture presents Judah to us as the first repentant person in the Bible. This did not happen overnight. There's another disturbing story where once again Judah is acting with Merciless, callousness. Not this time to Joseph, but to his daughter-in-law this time. (laughs) Judah does not have regard for his own family members, let alone anyone else. Can you imagine dealing treacherously with your (laughs) daughter-in-law? And yet here we see him, yet again, acting with utter callousness. And his daughter-in-law, Tamar, responds in such a way that she spurs him public shame. And Judah declares that she was more righteous than I. And this is a highly significant moment in our scriptures because it's the first time in our scriptures that anyone ever acknowledges their own guilt. We I mean, don't see this before now. Somebody acknowledging that they are guilty, that they have done wrong. And it signified a turning point in Judah's life. He begins the change. And here was born the ability to recognize one's own wrongdoing, to feel remorse and to change. A complex phenomena we might call repentance. (laughs) Turning around, having a change of heart, mind and thought And this is the beginning, all those years before Judah's reunification with Joseph. Something begins to change in him with a simple acknowledgement of his own grief, of his own wrongdoing. Last week, we spent a little bit of time thinking about John the Baptist's preaching, didn't we? And how repentance was a an anchor in his own particular response. He knows Messiah Jesus is coming. And repentance is, well, that's the appropriate response to this news. And in Judah, a guy who appears in Jesus' family line, we see a case study in repentance. He was caught up in the drama of a deeply dist- dysfunctional family. We read the story of his family, and it was messed up. And I love this about the Scripture. If you think your family is mixed up or messed up, just go and read the Bible's accounts of family life, (laughs) and you'll find you're in good company. It pulls no punches. Yes, where we come from is important, and Judah, he wrestled with his own origins. His father, too, was a man who could be Unscrupulous, also. But in Jesus, all humans have the chance of a new beginning. And it's not dependent on what has gone before us. Change is possible. (laughs) And if you want your life to change, there is one thing that is necessary. It's an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Admitting your own responsibility. And laying that at the feet of Jesus. Because this is a man who can change you. (laughs) He was put to death at the age of 33. No life at all. And yet here we live a couple of thousand years later and his power and his ability to change humans it is a power that is unabated (laughs) time has not lessened his strength and his power and his willingness to change us and i think that that is good news for us and it is good news for our families and it is good news for the communities in which we are placed (laughs) Because once we begin to turn towards the Lord with a repentant heart, it opens up the pathway for others to do the same. I'm going to invite the band just to come in to play us out in our closing song. But as we do that, let's just bow our hearts and our heads in the presence of this Jesus we are thankful from where we have come from. (laughs) We're thankful for all the good things that it has brought for us. But we're not ignorant to some of its destructive impact. And we're not ignorant of the fact that we too can act in ways that are destructive for ourselves, for our own households, and those who are going to be well following in our line we want to be those who represent the master well Paul says that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance and in these moments I pray that you would receive that call to turn around to repent to change your ways as an act of kindness So Lord, we want to thank you that you hold out to us the possibility of new beginnings. Lord, that you come to put an end to evil and to sin and all its destructive effects. And Lord, you enable us to live differently, to live well in a manner that is worthy of you. Help us to do that. Lord, in the words of our mouth, and the work of our hands, may those things honor you entirely and completely. For we would ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.